Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Kim Crawford to discuss his book, The 16th Michigan Infantry in the Civil War. Thanks for tuning in. On the hot summer evening of July 2nd, 1863, at the climax of the struggle for a Pennsylvania hill called Little Round Top, four Confederate regiments charged up the western slope, attacking the smallest and most exposed of their Union foe, the 16th Michigan Infantry. Terrible fighting is raged, but what happens next will ultimately and unfairly stain the reputation of one of the Army of the Potomac's veteran combat outfits made up of men from Detroit, Saginaw, and other Michigan locales. In the dramatic interpretation of the struggle for Little Round Top that followed the Battle of Gettysburg, the 16th Michigan Infantry would be remembered as the one that broke during perhaps the most important turning point in the war. Their colonel, a young lawyer from Ann Arbor, would pay with his life, redeeming his own reputation, while a kind of code of silence about what happened at Little Round Top was adopted by the regiment's survivors. From soldiers' letters, journals, and memoirs, Kim Crawford's book, The 16th Michigan Infantry in the Civil War, relates their experiences in camp, on the march, and in battle, including their controversial role at Gettysburg up to the surrender of General Robert E. Lee at Appomattox Courthouse. The book has been very well reviewed, including by Military Images and the Michigan Historical Review. According to Civil War News, this is historical writing at its finest a finely crafted regimental history that is entertaining, informative, and well-sourced. I'm excited to be joined today by the book's author, Kim Crawford. Crawford is a retired newspaper reporter and the author of The Daring Trader, Jacob Smith in the Michigan Territory, 1802 to 1825, and the co-author of The Fourth Michigan Infantry in the Civil War. He's written about Michigan Civil War soldiers for Michigan History Magazine, served as a guest curator for the Flint Sloan Museum's 2012 Civil War exhibit, The Brave and the Faithful, and he's given talks on both the 4th and the 16th Michigan Infantry Regiments, historical societies, and Civil War roundtables. Kim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks very much, Kurt. I'm excited to talk about your book, but as we begin, I just want to commend you on what a great achievement it is. Just looking at the volume, uh, you can really see how much love and care went into it, how much hard work you must have done in collecting all of the personal information about the men enrolled in the 16th, sorting through their diaries, finding photographs and engravings and depictions of them, uh, and all the way up to the meticulous narrative of their formation and experiences in the war. It's a real monument to historical research and writing. And one of the things that I wonder about is how you came to write about the Civil War specifically from the perspective of infantry units. As you say, Kurt, I was a newspaper man. And uh, decades ago, you know, a librarian, uh, newspapers used to have libraries, we called them morgues. One of the librarians uh, had asked me, he said, I think it was one of the anniversaries, one of the big anniversaries of the battle of Gettysburg. And he said, Kim, did we have local guys fighting at Gettysburg? And when I looked into it, I found it was absolutely true. And a bunch of them were uh, from the 16th Michigan. And so that had set me off sort of initially looking at who were these soldiers? What kind of, what kind of letters, what kind of diaries were left behind? And that was just sort of the spark that ignited uh, many, many years ago to, to get me interested in, in telling their story from start to finish. I like that idea about telling the story of a unit from start to finish, because it does give you such a 
interesting built-in narrative, right? Like you have to think about how the unit came together, where the folks came from, what they went and did, and then what ultimately happened to them. And it's all focused around sort of group of, you know, as you say, local, regional people that, you know, from places where Michigan audiences anyway would be familiar with. At the time, the, the Army considered a regiment of about a thousand men. So that's essentially 10 companies of, of 100 men each. At the time, the federal government had a very small standing army. So the president would have to turn to the governors of the northern states to contribute essentially, you know, militia soldiers or form and form volunteer regiments that would be sworn into the service of the army. So the 16th Michigan is one of these scores of volunteer regiments uh, from Michigan. That's the beginning of, of any civil war story about infantry. It's very likely starts out as a, a regimental story or the companies that go into a regiment. And uh, for the 16th Michigan, that's, that's men from Detroit, from Flint, Saginaw, from up uh, as far as up north as Ontonagon, and uh, guys who were probably miners. A lot of the Saginaw guys were, um, were were lumberjacks. Many, many farmers, probably more than half of all Michigan soldiers were farmers. They could be from, again, they could be store, a store clerk in Detroit or, uh, or even a small town like uh, Adrian. There were college kids from Adrian signing up. A lot of the officers were could have been men of uh, business, men of politics, lawyers, local lawyers, leaders of their community. You know, having looked at their diaries and letters and, you know, correspondence and things, what were some of the motivations for volunteering? As you say, some of these folks were well-established and were maybe community leaders and decided nevertheless to, to volunteer, to participate in the war. What drove them to want to fight? Well, this particular outfit is started by a fellow in, in, up in Flint. He's considered one of the local pioneer figures. His name was Thomas Stockton. And Stockton, like probably about a third of Michiganians at the time, are from, from somewhere else. They weren't from Michigan. They were from New York, New England, Pennsylvania. And uh, Stockton was an Easterner. And he'd come from a family with long, long connections to, uh, to American history. And he'd been, uh, he'd been to West Point. And uh, he was a rock-ribbed Democrat. He was a very, very, they were the kind of the conservative parties of their day. And they generally sided with the Southern interests. They weren't too interested in, in they weren't at all interested in the abolition of slavery. And uh, Stockton is a former military man and a Democrat. He had actually, to his, um, you know, he, here he's been to West Point, you know, as a young man and served his country, you know, as a, as a young officer in, in the Army in the 1830s, in the age of Jackson. So he wants to, he's very patriotic. So when the war comes, he wants to fight for his country. He wants to lead soldiers into the war against the Confederacy. But he's not exactly in favor, he's not at all in favor of a war to abolish slavery. He's into, uh, for a war to preserve the Union. He had himself owned slaves, is that right? He had owned a slave when he was a young officer on the frontier. And even though he's not a Southern guy in particular, his, his elder brother-in-law was a Southerner and had slaves. U.S. officers on the frontier, on the U.S. frontier, with, um, you know, even, even far to the north, Wisconsin, Minnesota, took their slaves with them in the days before the Civil War. And Docton literally bought a young woman to be a domestic servant for his wife. And this would have pretty serious 
ramifications for his attempt to lead Michigan soldiers 30 years later, because the governor of Michigan, the fellow who decided who was going to be commissioned to lead regiments, was Governor Austin Blair. And Governor Austin Blair was a dedicated founding member of the Republican Party and a super abolitionist politician. He fought for uh, equal rights from pretty much the, you know, all his adult life. So the idea of giving command to a fellow who at one time owned a slave just must have been anathema to him. And so he, he um, even though Stockton was a competent military man who'd served in the Mexican War, who'd commanded troops, who'd been to West Point, he could not get a command. Even President Lincoln wanted to give Tom Stockton a command. And so this guy has endorsements of Republicans and Democrats alike. He should really get a command. But because it was Austin Blair that had to make that decision, Stockton was going nowhere until the Union Army was thrashed at the first Battle of Bull Run. And suddenly the federal government needed troops right away, and they needed a lot of them. And so they kind of went over, the federal government went over Austin Blair's head and sort of gave Stockton an independent command. It didn't happen often, but it did happen in the case of Tom Stockton. So when he forms his regiment in the summer of 1861, this is not a state regiment. This is an independent regiment in 1861. So Stockton literally forms a regiment with the help of patriotic supporters, businessmen, around the state, Democrat and Republican, who, who basically funded the formation of his regiment until they could be sent off to Washington, D.C. In the, in the fall of uh, 1861. So Stockton is essentially, again, he's a former slave owner. He's a Democrat. He's not an abolitionist. He, he, he believes in a war to preserve the Union, but not a war to abolish slavery. So Lincoln grants him the commission to begin forming his own infantry. How does that play out on the ground? How You said he enlists some local businessmen to kind of support him. What, is it, what does the infantry look like as it's forming? What kind of training do they do? How do they prepare to leave Michigan? Companies are organizing who, who want to serve in whatever regiment they can join, uh, you know, to go into battle. And so there are these wonderful, wonderful, wonderful names of these, of these militia companies that form to go, to go into uh, to join Stockton in Detroit as the regiment forms, and they have these grand names like the Flushing Light Artillery or the uh, Saginaw Union Guards. And it's very romantic. I mean, these, these names are very patriotic. They just don't have anything to do with what army service is really about. Once you're sworn into the service of the U.S. Army, you know, your, your local company name means nothing. Your company A or company B or company C, these grand names just go by the wayside because they're pretty much meaningless. Stockton, having been a West Pointer, he knew how to train troops. Because what soldiers do is drill, young soldiers drill. They, they learn how to march. They learn how to assemble. They learn how to, to turn around, how to about face. And, and they literally learn how to march before they do anything, before anybody ever hands them a weapon to fire. And so it would have been a, a lot of the young men just considered this a great adventure. They have no clue what they're facing. Only men who may be served in the Mexican War Maybe some of those guys had the vaguest idea. They, they knew what, what war was going to be. They uh, understood that disease was going to probably kill more of those guys than, than bullets would. But uh, the young men, some of the young men, the diaries and their letters just show they think this is a grand adventure. And it's crazy because it's going to be the bloodiest conflict in American history. Did many of the diaries speak to specific motivations or is it really just that sort of patriotic enthusiasm that's driving young men to enlist? It's very patriotic. I have read thousands of pages 
of uh, Michigan men's letters and diaries. And it's very, very rare that you see someone saying this war is about slavery. Well, the war is about slavery. But if you asked a soldier in the Civil War, it is very likely he would tell you he's fighting to, to preserve the Union. Well, why is the Union coming apart? <laughs> because of slavery. So even though a soldier would, would not realize he was, he, or, or think about it in, term, in those kinds of terms, he was. There was a soldier who actually is a Republican out of Saginaw. He's a young guy named uh, Frank Keeler. And he said, we, that is those who are Republicans, are sometimes called abolitionists by certain northern newspapers. He's 21 years old. He's a sergeant. And he says, we are not abolitionists in the sense they would convey. But if emancipation becomes a military necessity, if slavery is a benefit or an aid to the rebels, then we say abolish it. He's, he's not saying, I'm here to free the slaves. You guys like him have grown up with the South in charge, the South dictating terms of uh, like the Fugitive Slave Act or the, the, you know, the, the villains in Uncle Tom's Cabin, which it has, you know, many, many men had read at that point in Michigan. But they're not fired up about a war to, to end slavery. They don't know anything. They know almost nothing about it other than, again, the fact that the North has been uh, pushed around for some decades by the South. So the regiment comes together in the summer of 1861, and they do some training and preparation in Michigan. When do they leave and where do they go? In September of 1861, Stockton's regiment leaves for Washington, D.C. By that point, now remember, the Union Army had been badly defeated at the Battle of Bull Run, and General George B. McClellan is in charge of the Army of the Potomac. And he's now, he's, he's a fairly conservative guy. He, he's figured, he says, my army has to be trained. We can't have an, you know, another disaster like first bull run. We have to have our army has to be ready and prepared and trained. So they do nothing for months. They're just literally on, uh, in camp or uh, just sort of pushing out from out of Washington, D.C. proper into, into sort of what, what is going to become suburban Washington uh, to our minds today. It's a very, very boring, very, very unexciting experience. The, the most excitement these guys have is when they go on uh, picket duty, which is like an advanced sentry duty way out to protect the Union encampments from attacks by, uh, by the Confederates. And, uh, and that's the nearest thing these, these young soldiers get to any excitement in conflict. And they are excited about it. I mean, there are these, these young pickets are they actually, you know, the, they and the, and, the, and the Confederate pickets would shoot at each other routinely until everybody sort of realizes that this is a really bad idea. You know, you're not in battle and you're just sort of robbing other soldiers of sleep. So it's really months and months and months before they actually see battle outside of Richmond, Virginia in the, uh, in the summer of 1862 when McClellan launches his very, very glacially moving advance on the Confederate capital on Richmond, Virginia. So uh, it's very, uh, a lot of the soldiers are, uh, when they get their rifles and their, their, their first muskets and they're, and they're taught how to shoot, I mean, some of them just, they just can't wait. They think, oh, we, we have our weapons now. We've learned how to, we've learned how to shoot them. We can't wait to get our, uh, our, our chance. There's a, there's a young fellow from uh, Grand Ledge, and he says, uh, I can't wait to get, to get sight of a, of a rebel. And because he's just convinced that he's invincible, you know, when you're, when you're you know, 20, 20 years old and. You just can't imagine that you can get killed in battle. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Kim Crawford, author of the 16th Michigan Infantry in the Civil War. So it's some time before they come to a battle, and I want to talk a little bit about the first 
actual encounter that they have. But before that, I'm curious to learn a little more about what life is like as they're waiting around. You say they're drilling, they're training, they're doing pickets. What are they eating? How do they sleep? What What does this sort of day-to-day look like when, when you're waiting to march? In camp, it's very routine. When you're not drilling, when you're not sort of essentially exercising and marching around, you know, you're doing, you're doing routine things. The Army will put you to work uh, fixing roads or building uh, bridges or causeways across swamps. And, you know, soldiers have to learn how to become soldiers. Uh, they have to learn their issued rations, their issued flour. If there aren't, you know, ovens and food being directly provided to you, you you're cooking your own. And uh, there's a soldier from Flint, and he says, it was pretty hard at first, he tells his, uh, he tells his, his family. Until he says, but now we, we get the hang of it, you know, when you learn how to, how to turn, uh, you know, flour, flour, <laughs> flour into food. The, uh, when you are issued rations, it's, it's hardtack. It's a super, super, super hard cracker or biscuit, thick, thick, thick thing that you could, you could break your teeth on it. You are given uh, coffee. The Army, it's a remarkable uh, how the Army thought coffee was pretty darn important to, to get soldiers going. I, I, it's like I think a lot of us would understand that. One of my favorite passages was that soldier from Grand Ludge, this young guy named George Irvey, and he's talking about having having meals and trying to you know get your food and then take it back to your tent is, uh, is not tranquil. He writes home, he says, I would like it if you could look into my tent about the time that we are eating dinner or supper. One will holler, get your darn coattail out of my coffee. And another, get your foot off my bread. And another there, you have got your head in my soup. Get off my potato. Wish the devil had you if you cannot sit without getting into my vittles. And so it's chaos. You know, it's just, and again, soldiers learn how, eventually they, they, they learn how to, how, how to do this, you know, without <laughs> spilling, spilling soup on each other or, or knocking over each other's food. But it takes a while. But some other others are very, very, it's, it's almost tranquil. A fellow from Saginaw, right? She says, we're seated around a camp fireplace, not because it's cold, but the, you know, the campfire's in the center, and it's so warm that we have no fire in it. We're writing letters, we're reading to our sleeping. And he just gives this idea of this very peaceful, quiet evening, you know, in a tent, as if they were camping out. Now, again, he can say that, but, you know, once it's wintertime and when snow is coming down, it's absolute misery. And then the disease starts in. Stockton's regiment was fairly healthy. They had good surgeons, and, and Stockton being a West Pointer, they, he knew, you know, where they had, to, how they had to dig latrines, how they had to make sure that, that drinking water was protected. But a lot of soldiers didn't. And of course, you know, the result is just men just suffering terrible illness. Was it largely dysentery or? Yeah. And, and of course, you know, nobody, nobody knows about insect-borne disease. But dysentery was a real, real killer. And overall, you know, it's just going to take far more lives than, than battle. Now, Stockton's regiment is an exception to that. They actually, when, you, when, when it's all over and, and done with, uh, more soldiers have, have actually, from Stockton's regiment, which becomes eventually re- becomes enrolled as the 16th Michigan, you know, they actually have more combat casualties than they did uh, from disease. And that's a rare, that's kind of rare. A lot of, uh, a lot of outfits and men, more men died of illness than of, uh, you know, that actual battle. But this is a regiment that goes into, you know, it's a, into some really terrible battles. Their first battle out is outside of Richmond, Virginia, 1862, and nearly 80 men right away are, are killed or mortally wounded, and uh, scores more are, were captured. So it was, it was their first battle out. 
was just their worst. It was just a, a terrible, terrible, terrible uh, introduction to uh, combat. And uh, the battles that follow, they're not much better. They're just not as severe. There's not, not the casualty rates are not as severe. But they, they are they're on almost every um, every major battle that's going to follow the battles of that are well known uh, uh, you know to the to the history buffs you know Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, Fredericksburg, and just one after another throughout for the rest of the war. And uh, they miss the Battle of Antietam just because they're held in reserve. But almost everything else they're part of. I wonder if we should focus in now in the time that we have left on the the battle that sort of earned them the reputation that you're working with or, or working against in the book, uh, which was at Little Round Top. Yeah, what's odd about Little Round Top is that anybody who goes to the battlefield goes to this hill. It just entered into the stuff of legend, the struggle between the brigade of which the 16th Michigan was part and what amounts to a brigade of Confederates who are attacking it. And it becomes historically looked at as the turning point of the, of, of the Civil War. If the Union soldiers on that hill fail to hold it, that somehow the Civil War is going to be lost. Well, that's not exactly, we know today that that's not exactly true, but for uh, over 150 years now, people considered it this incredible turning point. And the 16th Michigan being one of the regiments on the end of this line on towards the upper part of this hill were exposed when enough Confederates charged them, attacked them, and flanked them. Flanked meaning that they, they not only have, you know, men, men firing at each other directly in front of each other, but by getting around to the side, flanking them, getting around to the side. And that's fairly untenable for soldiers. They have to uh, take fire from two or three different directions. The last thing you want is, is people getting around behind you and, you know, to, to fire at you when, you know, where, where, you, where you can't return that fire. And during this attack, about 30 or 40 or probably 40 some men from the 16th Michigan literally broke. The regiment broke. They could not hold their position. And at the time, they were being commanded by a fellow from Ann Arbor named Norval Welch. And Welch and about 40 of his men literally fled, uh, retreated, ran up to the top of that hillside to rocks at the top. So it became historically this kind of black mark against the regiment that they had broken at this key time. Now, again, the Civil War was not lost. Reinforcements arrived in the nick of time and saved the day. But there were people who kind of held it, there were soldiers there that day who kind of remembered that the 16th Michigan had broken and that the brigade commander, a beloved figure, was, was killed well, You know, as this happened, as he was trying to staunch this collapse. So that's really what sort of set me off. I, I really wanted to know what happened that day. And so I, I read you know, and gathered up everything I could, Union and Confederate, all the reports, all the accounts, to, to try to put together a blow-by-blow account of what had happened there that day. This is a civil war up close. I mean, this is very, very, this is zoomed right in, you know, to one small corner of these giant battlefields. And that's what I've done in this, uh, you know, in the Gettysburg chapter of this book. Can we rehearse a little bit more of that here? What was the day like and how did the Union and the Confederacy come to clash on Little Round Top? Well, the round, Little Round Top, you have to remember, is one small corner of a huge battlefield. The Union line alone stretches for uh, probably a couple of miles, and the Confederate line, which faces them, is even uh, a lot longer. So when that hill was left, the hill was essentially left undefended by a a Union political commander, a general who has his appointment because of political considerations. He's not a professional military man, so he leaves that particular hill on the very, very far end of the Union line, on the far left of the Union line. He leaves it undefended. So 
the brigade of which the, in which the 16th Michigan is, you know serves in rushes at the very last second as Confederates are advancing to take that hill, which has you know important military value. They literally race to get to this hill ahead of the Confederate, and they do. And so what follows is is a couple hours of just very very close range fighting as the Confederates and you know in in, in succeeding it uh, waves attack the Union position trying to get this high ground, which could have severe implications for whether or not the Union Army can hold on. When people look back at it, it turns into this incredible potential turning point where if the Union holds on, the war is not lost. But if the Union doesn't and the Confederates take it, things could have swung the other way. That's a complete exaggeration, but it was believed for over 150 years people have been saying that. One particular commander, a fellow named Joshua Chamberlain of the 20th Maine, was given the credit for saving that position. He's a good soldier, but he didn't, he didn't single-handedly win that battle for the Union. The 16th Michigan had a lot to do with his success. So that's kind of what I wanted to explore in, in this book, was to in a sort of, let's tell, uh, let, let's analyze this and, and, and try to get a real, a much clearer, much, much more accurate picture of what happened here without the romanticism. Because the Civil War is romanticized. I mean, it's fought and um, it's a horrible, terrible battle and, it, and there's nothing romantic about it at all. But newspapers at the time certainly, certainly romanticized it. And uh, there are many soldiers who you know, laugh or are disgusted when they see the newspaper accounts of the battles they've been in. They're horrified that it's been so badly um, represented in, in the press. What did the men of the 16th have to say about what happened at Little Round Top. You mentioned that they were they were saved, you know, quote unquote, saved by this by this unit from Maine, uh, but that they nevertheless participated in defending their position and and, you know, won out. What did they say themselves in their diaries and their letters about what happened there? Very little, very little to them. There was nothing. There was absolutely nothing unusual about Civil War soldiers breaking and fleeing when they were when they were hit by gunfire from not just from the front but from the side or when you're when 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 your enemy gets behind you. There was absolutely nothing uncommon about that. It happened regularly and routinely. Almost every regiment who fought in the Civil War at some time was was in a, a position where they had to, where they had to uh, retreat, where they had to flee. And so to the soldiers it's just another day at work. But as the struggle for Lind- a round top becomes a stuff of legend, the survivors who became old men and to, were able to give speeches or to write would certainly, you know, were very proud that they were there that day. What they really don't want to talk about was that Colonel Welch and 40-some guys broke from their position on, on the right, the position that, was where, where they, that the Confederates were able to flank and get around. And so you, they really didn't talk about it. I, I call it a code of silence. It's just not something they wanted to dwell on. Every other soldier, every other unit that was there that day understood. Other regiments that were there from New York, from Pennsylvania, the main men, every one of them had been in that type of a position before. So, so they, didn't, they didn't like hold it against the 16th Michigan, a very small regiment with only 150 men in their line of battle that day when they were, when they were flanked and overwhelmed by these Confederates. Nobody held it against him that 40 guys, you know, retreated. It just wasn't considered some kind of big black mark against their reputation. From the historical sense, it becomes that. 
Could you say a little more about that? Like you say that in newspaper accounts, there's some romanticization. What does the historiography do to to place the burden of collapse on the 16th? Well, the first and best analysis was written by a fellow named Oliver Norton, a bugler and a flag carrier who was there that day. He was a Pennsylvanian, and it was his colonel who was running the whole brigade of which the 16th Michigan was part. And so he definitely blamed the 16th Michigan. For him, it was very personal that his his beloved colonel was killed as the 16th Michigan breaks and the reinforcements arrived to save the day. So he was very he was very um, hard on Norval Welch, the fellow from Ann Arbor, the, the, the lieutenant colonel from Ann Arbor. And so he was very he was very hard on the 16th Michigan when he wrote his book that analyzed what happened that day. Unfortunately, he made serious serious factual errors about uh, the 16th Michigan and its strength and its position. The hero of that battle is Joshua Chamberlain of the 20th Maine. But it's routinely left out is that two companies from the 16th Michigan were detached as skirmishers. And skirmishers are an advanced line. That's your, your frontline troops who are your kind of early warning. If they can hold the, the, the enemy back, then, then that means you're in pretty good shape. If they have to retreat, it means a pretty big force is coming your way and, and, you're, and you're going to be in a big scrape. The 16th Michigan sent out two companies, two of their largest companies, to fight to the left and to the front of, of the 20th Maine that day. Those skirmishers killed and wounded a lot of Confederates that day in support of their brigade's position. That specifically helped the 20th Maine. It was, it was no small thing what these fellows did, uh, these two companies from the 16th Michigan on the left of the brigade line. They literally helped the 20th Maine preserve and to hold their line and then to uh, drive the Confederates back. The Michigan soldiers never get any credit for that. And I mean never. So what I tried to show is that, well, yes, the 16th Michigan's position further up on the hill, where the whole their whole regiment is very, very significantly weakened by these skirmish companies being gone, skirmish companies that help the 20th Maine. So to this day, there are people who will tell you that Little Round Top was saved by the 20th Maine and Joshua Chamberlain. And again, Joshua Chamberlain is a very good soldier, but he didn't do that by himself. He had help. It's really incredible to me how these smaller personal individual stories are part of this much bigger narrative about the, you know, the progress of the war overall, and that there's no real good and fair way to focus on any individual units contribution or any units any individuals contribution because we have to zoom out to some degree and say in the case of the 16th that little round top was just one of many battles that they took part in all the way up until the end of the war yeah but from that long historical view when you're the guys who break and your your regiment fragments and 40 of 150 men who are on that hillside and 44 of them you know, retreat and flee from a lasting histor- historical standpoint. I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible black eye. In reality, from day-to-day Civil War service, that's just another, you know, another day at the office, as it were. But because it happens at Gettysburg, the mythological importance that, that sort of grows, this legend, legendary importance that grows out of the, the idea that if we lose this hill, the Civil War could end. And it just wasn't true. If the 16th Michigan was driven off that hill, if, they, if their entire brigade was driven off the hill, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of unit, Union soldiers arriving just a couple, a couple hundred yards away. There's no way the Confederates could have held 
held that hill. There's no way the Confederates could have won the Civil War by taking that hill. It just was not physically possible. They didn't have the men or the ammunition to do so. But the legend is, why if, the, why if those Confederates have driven that brigade off the hill, Civil War would have ended. Confederates would have defeated the Union Army at Gettysburg, and history would, would not have turned out uh, like it did. It's, it's not true, Kurt, but that's, you know, that's just sort of how the, the legend that's grown up around it. Yeah, that's the way that we've made it into a, an exciting story to tell about what happened there. Oh, and it is. It's an incredible story. It truly is exciting. It's truly a blow-by-blow, soldier-by-soldier, terrible, terrible thing. It just didn't mean that the war, you know, the war hung in the balance at that particular moment. After the incidents at Little Round Top, the 16th, you know, continues to campaign with the Union Army, and they find themselves in the battle outside of Richmond. Ah, the Civil War comes to an end in Virginia from the siege of Petersburg. War stopped being incurred about capturing Richmond, Virginia, as it was, you know, Grant, Grant realized his, his, his focus had to be to destroy the Confederate Army, the, the Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And so that finally happens in, in uh, spring of 1865 at Petersburg, Virginia. And the Union forces besiege Petersburg. Lee is literally trapped in Petersburg, and he knows that if he's trapped there, that's going to be the end, that he, he, uh, that he can't. He does, he's, he's lost so many men, and his supplies are so diminished that he can no longer really um, threaten Washington, D.C. He can no longer threaten the North. And once he, he has to uh, give up Petersburg, he literally is fleeing for the existence of, of, of the Confederate Army. And the Union Army literally has to chase him down and, and catch up to him. And so at some point, they're chasing him down, and Lee sends out runners with white flags? As the Union forces catch up with him, they finally, they finally catch up to him at, at Appomattox, out in the out in the Virginia countryside. And Lee's trying to get, a, you know, get away and, and trying to live to fight another day by reaching other Confederate forces and consolidating and trying to keep his army alive. And therefore, you know, the the Southern cause. The 16th uh, Michigan is with the soldiers that managed to get ahead of, literally, uh, get ahead of uh, Robert E. Lee and and force his uh, surrender. So these uh, these soldiers. Um, some of whom were there at the outset. Not all of them, because remember, many many soldiers have, have become sick. Many soldiers have been killed. Many soldiers have have uh, served out their first three-year term and did not sign up for more. But there were soldiers who were there from uh, from 1861 right up to the end, and they and they witnessed the surrender. And there's some great. There's a, a couple of really good eyewitness accounts from soldiers uh, about about the surrender. Could you give a couple of examples of what those eyewitness accounts of the surrender look like? What did folks think when they realized that the war had come to an end? When the flags, when Lee sends out flags of truce to discuss, he 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 he, uh, he sends out he sends out white flags with the certain officers on horseback to say, "Hey, let's stop the hostilities. Let's let let's have a ceasefire, so we can talk about you know, so 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 Lee can talk to Grant about surrender." And the soldiers go, they go, uh, they go wild. There's cheering, there's hat tossing, there's, uh, uh, because it's, it's really unbelievable to these soldiers who've been in this fight for so long to finally comprehend that the war is over. There are some guys who don't believe it. They say, is this real? Is, is this, is this really, is this a Confederate trick? There's a couple of different versions of that. Some, some soldiers said it was greeted very, um, very cautiously with cautious optimism. And other people said there was just wild cheering. 
it probably both those things happened. For instance, there was a young fellow from uh, Holland, Michigan. He said, uh, he said, even the rebels were loud in their joyous demonstrations when they heard it. This is a young guy uh, born in uh, Holland, a, a young uh, Dutch guy named William Vischer. Another fellow from uh, uh, Detroit named Tom Lackey, he, he again says, just cheering, cap-tossing at this moment. And uh, that night, there, there are accounts uh, of, of them sharing uh, uh, food with, uh, with Confederates, with Confederate soldiers, even though that wasn't supposed to happen. It, it just must have been an incredible scene that men who were trying to kill each other just hours before were, are now um, sharing a meal. It's really fascinating to hear the the first person perspectives. I think as a kind of last question, I'd like to ask a little bit about the work that goes into writing a book like this. You know, you're working with newspaper archives, you're working with diaries, letters. How does one get in touch with all of those primary sources? And what did it look like for you to collect all of the material here and give it some order? Well, it looks like box after boxes and file folders full of stuff is what it looked like. No, I, I was very fortunate. There's, there's just a, I'm in southeastern Michigan. Detroit Public Library's Burton Collection is uh, literally, you know, uh, down the street. Ann Arbor's uh, Clements and, and Bentley uh, Libraries, wonderful, wonderful libraries. I, had, I got some material out of uh, MSU's archive. You just have to collect and piece it together and see if you can, and see if you can make a story of it. You know, as a news, as a, somebody who'd been in, you know, a newspaper business, so you know, I, I, I was fortunate to work at, at a time when I would be allowed a lot of space to tell a story. So, um, so you know, I, I really had to think of it as like it's a giant, giant story. <laughs> it's just a big, big story. And uh, and and you know, how do you how do you do it? It's a narrative. So there's a beginning, middle, and end, and you just have to find all the elements and you know, come together and see if it works to be able to tell that story. As I said at the outset, I think that the work really has paid off in in terms of a really impressive collection of primary source material and a very exciting narrative of the Michigan 16th and what they went through from formation until all the way up until the end of the war. I want to thank you, Kim, for taking the time to chat with us about it today. I've really enjoyed this conversation and spending some time with your book. Thanks very much, Kurt. I appreciate you listening. Kim Crawford's book, The 16th Michigan Infantry in the Civil War, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Mediha Vos, Dante Smith, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.